Yeah, right. And we are live. That is right. We're getting reckless all the way down in Texas. Live stream number 102. We got the shades on. We got the stunner shades on. Before we get going for this legendary guest that we have, I've got to dedicate a rap to this amazing human being. Such an amazing human being that this human being walked up and asked Evander Holyfield if he liked a song that he had recently sung in karaoke. You don't believe me. You can check out his Twitter and see it right there for yourselves. But to start it out, let's get our rap down. Yo, it's Slick Rick the second. Flips, bricks, and those weapons. Skin, shins like Tekken. Past her, that's Reverend. Used to be a hater, now a lover. Lethal weapon, not Gibson. He's Glover. Databases and containers, no brainer. Headless and dreadless, Ichabod Craner. But it's Ricardo Vasquez and Segundo. Putting that data on Kate's all up in your mundo. Profundo, that's deep. Like the Mariana Trench. CRD meets PVC. Foo fighting monkey wrench. From enemy to evangelist. That's the topic of the day. So let's kick back and relax. It's the DOK. Rick Vasquez, the second. Welcome to yet another date on Kubernetes live stream. Live stream number 102. You've been with us for quite a while. How are you? Yeah, rep, rep your crew. Rep your crew, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> if anybody in the data on Kubernetes community is OG, it is this gentleman that you have in front of you. Rocking those cool shades, killing it down in Texas. Um, Rick, you are no stranger in our community. I hope you never are a stranger to our community. Put the real serious glasses on now. Um, I'll put on my binoculars. But anyway, it's good to have you with us today. We're going to talk about a lot of different stuff. But in case somebody doesn't know you, who are you, Rick? So I'm Rick Vasquez, and I am a technologist. I've been a data nerd pretty much my entire life. Um, so whenever people ask me how I got into computers, it's a really funny story because it uh, has to do with gaming, right? So the first computer I ever built um, was so that I could have, you know, a, a better experience playing Counter-Strike. This is like OG Counter-Strike, none of this new CSGO stuff. And uh, really starting to understand things about networking, about how operating systems worked, about how graphics cards all, all work, uh, was all just kind of in passion of getting better FPS and a lower ping. And then that transformed over time, you know, as I, as I matured into a, a young adult um, into, well, hey, how do I um, use this to, to kind of turn this into a career, something that I'm really, truly passionate about? How can I make that something that I'm able to do every day and enjoy doing it? And I ended up, you know, out of school, starting a, a, a pretty cool software company. Um, with some guys that was really focused on data. Um, so we collected data from all kinds of disparate sources all over the internet. We had to normalize it, shove it into a database, and then make it as fast as possible um, for people to retrieve that data, um, not just through search, but doing some analytics and some summary stuff. And that's really where I was introduced to databases. Um, and so I was... Uh, you know, thrown into to the fire, MySQL, you know, super early version of MySQL. And then from there, we somehow decided that uh, MDB cluster was going to be like the, the, net, the thing that, you know, differentiated us from everybody, uh, not just from an availability perspective, but a performance perspective, because everything was, is held in memory. And so uh, I, you know, I was super young buck deploying MDB cluster by hand, scripting everything. And so I know a thing or two about some distributed SQL <laughs> back in the day, whenever it was like a shared nothing architecture that was like super hard um, to develop on. And, you know, I moved on from, from that company and uh, worked in a bunch of other little startups, some that did well, some that didn't do well, and then uh, ended up at, at a company that did proprietary databases for geospatial. Um, so it was a geospatial analytics platform. And what we did there is um, we actually had a rendering engine next to the query engine in the same application space. So it was a shared memory pool. And that really kind of cut the, the rendering time for you know, things like drawing district maps or showing you know, on, on CNN how they have those maps where uh, the election's happening and you can see, you know, mm -hmm. the counties are down to the, the zip code level. Um, so all of that data obviously needs to get rendered fast um, and, 
you know, we, we had a really cool, clever way of doing that. And so worked there, helped them build that product and, and get it to market. And then uh, from there, started pursuing my passion in open source at a company called Percona. So some of you may know who Percona is, but a, a pretty big leader in the open source community, especially when it comes to uh, keeping open source open so that they're striving to take some of these databases that are the building blocks of the internet really, or the really the building blocks of the, the today that we know and making sure that there's always gonna be a fully open source cut of that where you don't ever have to pay for enterprise features, things like that. And so um, really cool, ignited my passion for open source there um, in a way that I didn't have it before. And, uh, you know, fast forward a little bit longer um, after five years at Percona, it made sense for me to, to kind of jump into the, the hardware game. And so now I'm focused uh, at Western Digital on kind of strategic and emerging programs within the flash business and trying to, to bring the world the vertical integration they deserve all the way down to, to the storage, right, device. Uh, so a lot of exciting stuff, but that's it in a nutshell who I am and, and how I got to be here. Good. Um, I would like to know two things. Do you still play Counter-Strike, the OG Counter-Strike? Oh, I, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't even know if you could find servers to play it. I don't have any time anymore to play any games. It's kind of sad. Yeah, the thing is, because like my go-to game back in the day was uh, Command & Conquer Red Alert. And about every five years, I go through like a binge phase <laughs> where I find some way to get on my computer nowadays, which kind of has its own kind of complications. But with enough tutorials and readmes, you can kind of get there. Um, but it's kind of funny how games a lot of times spark that interest, you know, like, oh, now I'm going to kind of, you know, see what's under the hood. I guess second question is you mentioned, because um, we're going to be talking a lot today about before and after and differences that have been uh, kind of marked your career and way you've seen things. What was kind of the, what has been the sort of before and after effect when it comes to open source? Yeah. So for me before I thought open source, you know, means to an end, right? You just, you pick it up, you don't have to pay anybody to use it and right. Bada bing, bada boom, right. You've got some libraries, you can slap some stuff together. It helps kind of increase the speed of development, but you, you didn't really owe anything to anybody, right. Cause it's just random stuff you found on the internet or right from a, a general community perspective, it's because people were, were passionate about it. And really after um, having spent so much time at a company that is, is, you know, purely dedicated to open source and, and the ideology of, open being the right way to do things. Um, one of my biggest shifts has been that uh, proprietary is, is actually uh, now the lagger. I think before you could say that it was the conventional deployment model. It had obviously the lion's share of revenue. Um, people were really focused on it because that was the way that you deployed things. Um, and this, you know, open source thing was like, oh, yeah, that's what like people do that didn't have enough money to buy Oracle or didn't have enough money to buy SQL Server. And I was like one of those guys that didn't have enough money to buy those things. So it's like a necessary evil so that you could still operate and still get what you needed to get done, done. But really what's ended up happening is over time, the number of people who have opted into leveraging open source technology has kind of overtaken the, the number of people that are willing to part with the amount of money up front that it requires for that proprietary solution. Then you start to see some of the innovation uh, uh, you know, stagnate a little bit with some of these companies because they're focused mainly on only what their customers are asking for instead of, hey, what can we build that, that fundamentally changes the way that we can do things? And that's something that an, an open ecosystem, right? Not just open source from a software perspective, but open from an ecosystem perspective provides because you can have some of the, the best and brightest from many different companies that are trying to solve the same issue. And instead of everybody solving it in their own nuanced way, you can have one way that gets solved, that gets adopted kind of industry-wide and then that, that pie just gets bigger for everyone. And I think that's one of the biggest things from a successful open source deployment that you can see 
is that it fundamentally makes the pie bigger for everyone. And whatever slice of that pie that your company happens to have as a steward of that open source community should also grow um, with the, the overall pie size, right? And even if it doesn't and, and you know, you're shrinking, the, the growth of these open source ecosystems is, is at this point explosive, right? And Kubernetes being uh, one of the most explosive and at the forefront of that. And, and we'll get into that later on in this talk. But from an open perspective, um, we're seeing this trend, not just in software. I think software has done a great job um, representing that, but we're seeing it in the hardware world. Right? You know, OCP is a is huge movement. Um, we're seeing it everywhere where people are wanting to start to develop out in the open because of the code development that you can claim because of the edge cases that you see that you wouldn't otherwise see in your customer base. And then really it, it's all about the end user's experience is most likely going to be fundamentally better because it's open than it is because you're just after it for a commercial game. That's a good point. Um, related to that, you did mention this word a few times. What's your favorite kind of pie? <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's hard because it's seasonal. But yeah, right. Because you know, next my, week, my universal, yeah. my universal, yeah. universal favorite pie, key lime pie, hundred percent. Okay, like easy, okay. easy. Okay. But you know, once you start to introduce seasonality into it, um, I'm a sucker for a, a, an incredible pecan pie around oh. around the now time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah key lime, yeah. key lime's a little bit strange. You know, it's it's starting to cool off. <laughs> The leaves are turning colors. You know, we're about to stuff our faces, at least in America. Next, next week. Full of yeah. turkey. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's nothing better than than a good Texas pecan pie to go along with that. For, the, for those that don't know, I, I reside in Austin, Texas, which is sunny most of the time. But, you know, today it's also it's a, it's a nice day out there. Okay, good. But no, but I think it's just nice that you mentioned. Now, obviously, touching on, you know, ecosystems such as the Kubernetes one, which is just open, unleashed a ton of activity. And there are others um, that, that, that shouldn't be forgotten. Can we touch a little bit more on your background to understand the mentality of the folks that you've worked with in the database world, starting from the beginning, uh, when, you got, when, you, when you got in there? How would you say the sort of mindset, um, way of dealing with problems, the positioning inside organization, um, how, how do database folks, it, obviously there are lots of people out there, so we don't want to, you know, profile, you know, brush with two uh, broad, broad of strokes, but in terms of the kind of problems they're tackling, the way that they're, you know, um, positioned inside organizations, how, how has that been in your perspective? So it's, it's a really good question. And I thought a lot about this uh, in general, like what, what is so important or what's a, the key characteristic about databases and really the one answer that I can come up with is it's, it's the high performance application, right? It is the lifeblood of many organizations. So if your database is slow, it doesn't matter how great your application code is that sits on top of it, your app's going to be slow. Um, and so the most I've ever seen um, on a focus on performance or min-maxing, right? And, and really starting to optimize, you start to see a lot of people get into that niche whenever you talk about databases. It's a lot of people who are obsessed with performance. It's a lot of people who maybe were laggards on even adopting virtualization because bare metal was just that you know, five, 10% performance on a, a query sometimes makes a big difference, right? And so early virtualization, you were taking a little bit of a hit and people were directly attributing that to virtualization of different kinds. And so what you see is this combination of obsessed with maximizing performance and, you know, also obsessed with minimizing anything that could possibly be a hindrance to that. And so that also probably means new deployment methodologies. Really, you don't see a lot of people on the bleeding edge latest release, which is kind of a strange thing to think about. Whenever you think about, oh, hey, you know, there's a new version of a database. It's like, well, yeah, you should always want to be on the latest version, right? 
And when you talk to people in the database community, they're like, yeah, yeah, no, we let some like of those newfangled guys. Like they, they go after the, the latest version. We're, we're going to wait, you know, six to 12 weeks and, and see how it works out. And, or maybe, you know, never adopt on, on the first GA release. You, you adopt on the next dot release. I've heard that so many, so many, so many Me too. times. I've heard that. From... I've heard that with, with Cassandra 4.0 coming out. Like, oh, no, 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 no. Well, even though we waited years for that to happen, let's wait till 4.1 comes out. Like, that's what yeah, I'm Yeah, yeah. We're, we're not, yeah, we're not the, the people that, we're not the guinea pigs for 4.0. And it's like, I don't know what you guys think. But, you know, the faster you adopt 4.0, the faster 4.1 comes, right? Yeah. Uh, it's it, They don't release 4.0 knowing that everything's wrong with it. Right. And so they're not going to really find these edge cases that are your edge cases until you start using it. Um, so it is it's kind of this uh, interesting dichotomy from what's in the DNA of somebody who is a database engineer, a database administrator is it's this balancing act between how do I maintain and achieve the maximum level of performance and then balance that with you know, either operational distraction or, um, you know, doing what I know works uh, instead of trying something new. And so it's, it's a really interesting kind of oil and water mixture. But if you can, if you can really figure that out um, within your organization, it, it unlocks a, a new level of performance that wasn't previously possible because more people and more applications within your company can get access to that much needed data, right? Which is really what, what makes a lot of companies valuable. Mm -hmm. with, with that in mind, you know, someone told me recently that, because once again, thinking about mentality and, and how problem solving works, somebody told me recently, who has a lot of experience in the database world, which is why I'm curious your opinion, that 80% of data projects fail. Oh. <laughs> Sounds like a lot. Yeah, I mean, and I'd have to dig deeper to see where the stat came from, but it sounded like, and well, I guess, how do you define a data project? You know, what, what's the definition of that? But would you agree to a certain extent that it's folks that are often dealing with things not working? Um, I think that's a huge symptom of garbage in, garbage out. Right. Um, databases don't make your data better. Uh, and a lot of people don't really understand that. They, they kind of want this silver bullet, especially with some of this streaming uh, stuff that, that's come about now. It's like, oh, now we've got like all the data, right? Everything, uh, data. And it's like, yeah, but you, you know, if you've got a poop shoot, right? And the only thing coming down the poop shoot is poop. Uh, you're not really going to get some gold nuggets unless, you know, somebody has a strange diet. So I don't know. It's going to be a great quote video right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that's just how it works. Um, databases are, are no different. So if you are, are storing or persisting data, right, and you're, you're relying on a database management system to do that for you, sure, it will, as long as you organize it and, you know, do whatever, that's great, right? You're telling the database how you want this data to be persisted. If when you retrieve that data, it's absolute nonsense, that what does it matter? And I feel like that is more the issue um, with some of these data related projects than the actual platform that's leveraged behind the scenes. Fair enough. Um, totally fair. Now, I guess <clears throat> looking, uh, you know, we, the, the subject today obviously is from enemy to evangelist hearing about how you first encountered Kubernetes and had an opinion at that point regarding running databases on Kubernetes, different workloads and how that changed. It, where did you first hear about Kubernetes? Who told you about it? What was your initial reaction? Oh man, I think I think we have to start even before that, right? Let's I think do it. Let's do it. The, the, yeah. the story starts really with uh, containers, and right, if you if you don't want to get super super back in the past, it's VMs, but containers, right? So the first time I had heard about containers was um, when I was working at the, the second startup that I had. We were really starting to leverage Node.js um, to build really quick, you know, we had, we had a microservices architecture. And so just the quick APIs that we needed to do and, and scale up um, in some way, we started looking at containers to say, hey, you know, how can we just get this to be uh, an immutable deployment style where we can have 
you know, what, what we now know is the CICD pipeline. And what we were doing is test-driven development. And then, you know, every, every commit, we'd have, you know, a build that get popped out. And instead of that, we were saying, well, let's just pop out a container out the back end. Um, and so, you know, we started doing that. And that's great um, from uh, uh, being able to leverage it. And so this is Docker, like, way before people today are, are looking at docker right we're, we're way past the the post world split of enterprise docker and, and community edition this was like back when it was just like docker right there was no ee there was no ce it was just like containers were like this new thing for immutable stuff and it just made it just made deployment super consistent right and so that was really cool um at the same time and I was looking at these containers from the application side, especially from a, a backend perspective. I was like, well, we're just hooking that up to a database, right? And at that point, uh, I, I was running a, a pretty substantial Postgres deployment. And uh, looking at that, it's like, why would you ever want to containerize this? Why would you ever stick this in a container? Um, number one, right? You need control. Like the whole point of this is that it's mutable, right? <laughs> like everything you're doing to the data is changing the data. Um, so everything in that container is now, right, not disposable. You have to like really, really know what's going on inside of this container. And so, you know, eventually we ended up getting this, this idea that you could have these mount points that persisted beyond the, the life cycle of a container. And that, you know, that started to be like, okay, well, maybe you can start looking at that. And that's, by that time, I was already at Percona. And I actually gave a talk at Percona Live in 2017 on uh, bare metal VMs or containers. Like, you know, what, what should you do um, from a, a multi-faceted database deployment? So if you're in a hybrid MongoDB, MySQL, Postgres, you're running all three, um, wouldn't it be easier to run it in containers? And the answer is just straight up no, right? Because it, it opened up this whole can of worms. And then on top of that, you had the performance hit that I was talking about, right? That was a big deal back in the days. Is containers were nowhere near um, what they are today as far as transparency and performance. And so I think that's step zero is why, why would I ever containerize my database? And even when there was some mechanisms for me to be able to like make sense of it, like it still was just not very interesting um, because now you're, all you can do is just restart that container or replace that new container with another one. And then you have to worry about what happens then. It doesn't make rollback easier. It doesn't make anything easier than app get or right? Yum install or yum update. Like nothing is really that much better about just putting the database binary in there and leaving the database in some data directory that you're mounting. You just like no advantages and all disadvantages from a performance perspective and, and none of the portability. And so then I hear about Kubernetes, right? Which is um, supposed to be the, this cool way and, and what year are we talking about? Oh, this is probably 2017. Okay. Still. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Maybe 16, like the end of 16, 17 ish timeframe. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love it. Whenever people <laughs> are like, five, need, yeah. needs, yeah, pre pan, yeah, needs, needs five years experience in Kubernetes. And it's like, shit. Find me, find me that, yeah. that <laughs> unicorn. Yeah. 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 Uh, hasn't been a thing that long. So, uh, yeah, and and you know it's this really it's this it's this way that you can have a, a data center like all orchestrated and whatever. And this is still whenever the the Mesos uh, war was like. This was like a you know the 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 Blu-ray versus HD DVD of of you know modern workload orchestration was was happening in front of of our face. And at Percona, we were actually. Um, working with the, the guys at Mesos on something um, for, for one of the databases because we thought DCOS was going to be like the, the, the cool thing, right? There was a lot to like about DCOS from a deployment perspective. And Kubernetes, I think the, the whole ecosystem learned a lot from that and said, yeah, we could do that too, right? And so 
um, early days Kubernetes, it was probably as as good as what what we know now today is like Docker Swarm, right? Where oh hey, you know I can put like six things together and like push a button and like it kind of will make them all work together, um, and and that was great and pretty much strictly for containers, right? So it was just the immutable workloads. And so at that point, it's like, okay, yeah, you can still do these container things and then you can put them on very specific machines and all you're doing is managing the runtime lifecycle from like an upgrade downgrade and maybe a little bit of configuration magic but, you know, Puppet and Chef and everything, that's still around at this point, right? And that's like what people are doing in VMs and on bare metal. And again, what advantage am I gaining at all from putting it in Kubernetes? It's it's no more portable, right? It's not portable at all. It's not really making my life easier from a general management perspective. And it's, right, it's a database in a container, right? Which for me was still terrible from a performance perspective. Um, and then so we like fast forward a, a little bit after that and we start to introduce, you know, stateful sets mm-hmm. and kind of this notion that, hey, it probably makes a lot more sense to have data move around with containers, right? Or have containers that can be on other machines that magically stitch back to a, you know, set of disks that are available. And so networking has also been drastically improving over this time. I think that that needs a shout out because a lot of people don't realize how stuck in the mud Kubernetes would have been had we still been on mainly one and 10, maybe 25 gig networking. Like th- th- this whole move to 40 gig and 100 gig networking is is a very big deal from a Kubernetes perspective. But that's kind of just, a, you know, keep that off to the side. It's a distraction. Um, we, we, we now have right ways to move workloads around and you can actually have, okay, well, I'm going to run my database binaries, maybe on some machine, it's going to be accessing disks that have really acceptable performance. Um, even if they're network attached, right. Or fiber attached Mm -hmm. or whatever they're doing. And now you're starting to get into this new world of, Hey, you know, I've, I've been able to deploy VMs on different servers and then connect them back to a SAN with iSCSI for a while now. And now I'm starting to get that general feeling from Kubernetes with stateful sets. Um, and then you kind of upgrade that one step further with CSIs and you, you're really getting kind of the robustness that, that you would expect out of a, a full-on SAN type deployment or network attached storage deployment. And, and you're starting to get into a way that starts to really feel like, hey, I could put a database in there and see what happens. And then obviously fast forward uh, even more where now we can have data, right? We have an entire data layer in, in Kubernetes that's just accessed from the outside. So you have technologies like MyData's OpenEBS, you have Longhorn, you have Rook, you have all of these container attached storage solutions that themselves are orchestrating behind the scenes everything that a CSI gives you so that from an application perspective, you literally just ask for a resource type of some type of performance. The scheduler is smart enough to understand where that container needs to sit to get you that that level of performance. And then underneath that data layer is smart enough to respond to say, hey, if that doesn't exist, I can serve that. I can move data around now, create replicas and have this persistence that, you know, many containers can use without the user or the application needing to think about anything other than this is where I want the data. Um, And so that evolution kind of like start to finish, I would say sometime around when CSIs became a thing is whenever I started to to look at Kubernetes and say, hey, you know, maybe it's possible. And then really the the full blown data plane is is what sold me on it. 
Um, because one of the hardest things to manage is not just replication between kind of logical or physical replication or backups, those types of things. You've always been able to leverage if you had a really expensive SAN, you know, a nice one from NetApp, or, you know, you have a, a great Dell EMC box or something that you paid buku dollars for. It's cool, right? You have this UI. You don't have to worry about if your stuff blows up. You, you can always do that. You have this time machine type functionality. And that just didn't exist in, in really an open way, in, in open source. And you can, you can have all of those benefits now from a software-driven approach. And that's really what kind of did it for me, where it was like, this is actually better than deploying on either direct attached and having to manage everything on your own and backups and this and that. Like there's no, there's no replacement for offsite backups or like moving your data entirely out of the data center. That's still a, a mandatory thing. But knowing your data is gonna be safe because it's in more than one place and not having to worry about that is such a big deal, especially when you're talking about database applications that that's really kind of where it started to open my eyes and say, look, I need to, I need to look into how this works. Now, this, is, this has been fantastic. All the while, this is the process you're going through. I'm curious that in the, you know, working at Percona or in, in the other places you've been, but particularly going back to the beginning, one thing was going on, you know, this transition. In the meantime, what were the conversations like that you were having with customers and what were, were they even aware of these changes that were going on? Because sometimes it's, I've heard that in different live streams, like now the customer's never even going to see this. Other times it sounds like customers can even be more advanced than the vendors. What was your experience like in that regard? So this is really interesting because um, sometime during this journey that I just took everybody through, there has been this, you know, there's been this brewing change for a long time ever since you know, we can call cloud native as a paradigm has existed. So if we like rewind all the way back to like 2010-ish, where people were using EC2, you know, Elastic Compute, oh, that's cool. And right, everybody's starting to get going in the clouds. Um, okay, well, that's great. And, you know, everybody pitched this, you know, total cost of ownership benefit and, you know, oh, whatever. Um like it's, it'll just run better in the cloud. You don't have to worry about anything. You don't hire system administrators, blah, blah, blah. And that's not really why the cloud ended up taking off. Like let's spoiler alert that nobody, nobody cares that they didn't have to hire sysadmins anymore. What, what ended up happening is that the developers, as they got access because the CIO was told by the CTO or the CEO straight up told the CIO, Hey, you're, in the way you need to give this guy access, the more and more you started to see that happen in organizations where there was a self-service workflow for the developer to do what they needed to do without having to interact with other people at the company, that's really the reason why all this happens. Um, that like, if, if we cut through all the BS, that's, that's absolutely the reason why we, we're in the world we are today. And so what you see is um, kind of a spectrum of companies that have varying degrees of control that's granted to their CTO organization, right? When I say CTO, I mean people that are doing things that are applications for their end users, right? Their, their core product um, is what that CTO team is working on. And what I mean by CIO organization, that means either internal applications, because there's still application developers for internal, um, and then systems integration, system deployment, right? Resource management, all of that is what I mean by CIO organization. So some, some people are still very traditional whenever it comes to how do I have my, you know, my, how's my company set up? Um, I have a very traditional CIO org where the technical leadership is really driven and, and executed by the CIO organization. And then I have a CTO org that, you know, they're executing on, you know, R&D that, that may not be something that is code-based, right? Or if it is, it's not something that's the, the main driver of revenue. And so you see those people being a little bit of the, the laggard here. Um, and, you know, no surprise. Uh, some of your bigger banks, some of yeah. your more traditional manufacturing, right? Uh, auto manufacturers, um, you know, airlines, 
these things that are companies that very, very data-driven, but their product isn't necessarily some technical application that's served up through either a web browser or some other machine that's consuming it. And then on, on the other end of the spectrum, you have telecom, right? <laughs> Which is almost absurdly pressing what, what's possible in the boundaries of the future or uh, big tech, um, your hyperscalers, the, yeah. the big tech of the world. And those people are almost 100% CTO driven to the point where they, they don't even have a CIO, right? The mm-hmm. CIO got diminished to maybe like the security guy. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's like the big bouncer out front is all the CIO is now because the CTO actually owns this whole provisioning lifecycle. They've got a big DevOps team. You know, everything's about developer servicing and enablement because their product at the end of the day, how they make money is what comes out of these developers' fingertips and how productive that they can be to kind of push the next iteration. How do we make the user experience better? Those types of things. And so there's that spectrum of companies. And I think um, on the, the more traditional extreme, you are seeing like now timeframe, people are really starting to wake up to this. Um, and I think the reason it's taken so long is that maturity cycle had to happen within Kubernetes um, because they don't need some of the operational improvements um, per se, right? They are okay paying Oracle, right? They are okay paying SQL Server. A lot of these other distributed SQL databases that are available or big analytics engines have had a managed service in one way or another, whether that means it's not called managed service, but they give you all the tools to just push button deploy in a UI. And it's, it's a bit self-service on-prem that's, that's existed for quite some time on the proprietary side. And I think what's happened is because of some of these big tech firms that have a commitment to open source and we're solving a lot of the same problems together, what we have now, right? Borg, you know, birth Kubernetes and then, from Kubernetes, you have some of the, the biggest and baddest databases of all time, right? You've got MySQL, you've got Cassandra, you've got Postgres that are all getting closer and closer from an integration perspective. And that's all not being driven by one or two people or Percona um, or any one database company. In fact, the database companies are kind of the laggards here. It's some of these companies are saying, hey, I have 10,000 instances of MySQL. I don't want to have to worry about like, deploying. I don't want to like restarting a server or doing a failover is a nightmare mm-hmm. um, when I have to find that needle in the haystack. So they've pioneered this way to kind of do these database operations. And fundamentally, the way that they're leaning on that is, is by using Kubernetes. And so those operational gains and that maturity cycle that happened, right? That was People were scripting stuff to do lifecycle management before operators existed. Then an operator framework came out. Now we have operators that are like robust and repeatable and, you know, they work for pretty much everybody and, and are near bulletproof, some of them. Um, and, and it's starting to look more and more like what people traditionally think of as a managed service, like a database as a service. I don't have to think about it. I can push buttons and things happen for me. Um, there's a lot more to manage service than that, right? I think that that the clouds have, have kind of diluted the, the word managed service there. But what you see is people that are in traditional IT have a favorable lean towards these managed services, especially if they want to quote unquote outsource or they don't want to in-hire some talent. They'll go and they'll hire somebody out to do it uh, and, you know, there's lots of big companies in the world that have, you know, set up lots of, of these deployments for people. IBM and SAP, right? They, they come to mind. Uh, when's the last time you heard of an SAP deployment being less than $10 million? Yeah. Never. Right? Hefty price tag. Yeah. Yeah. Never. Um, but once it's done, right, the care and feeding is, is you know, mostly, you know, it's, it's almost a black box to, to the company that's deployed it. Um, there's a few experts involved, but... That's kind of the the more traditional landscape where in this big tech or in the open landscape, 
not only do you not have to know what it is, it's also not a black box. Um, if you wanted to know what it is and you wanted to tinker with it, you can, but you have this really robust base that you can deploy off of. And I think what people are starting to see is it's really attractive to start doing things on a small scale. And if that small scale starts to snowball, you, you don't have the, oh shit moment of what do I do to scale this thing, right? How do I do this? Because most things that you're deploying now uh, in Kubernetes have this operationally sound thing that, that's based in cloud native. And cloud native is all about having this robust, horizontally scalable, you know, independent way to scale your, your different aspects of your application. And so I think that's, um, from a customer experience perspective, I really do think it, it depends on which camp you're in. But that traditional camp, they're really starting to come into the Kubernetes landscape now because of the maturity, right? They're seeing that this is a viable way to solve a problem that I've been having for a while or a future problem that I think I'm going to have, but I just don't want to deal with. Yeah. Um, yeah. A couple of things there. You mentioned, you know, starting small scale. So for a lot of the folks out there that are kind of, you know, still in the naysayer camp, like this is a bad idea, I don't want to do it. There are different things there. It could be internally, they're going to have to fight too much. For those people to have, you know, like a sort of, you know, MVP proof of concept to be able to show to a boss or, or a team, how would you recommend that, like I said, that a, a sort of naysayer saying, try this first. And if you really don't like it, then I'll, then I'll shut up. Um, what would you recommend that they take, take in terms of first steps? Obviously, we have the community. But, you know, if, if someone needs to say, like, all right, I'll try this out and see how it goes, what would you recommend? Uh, so, okay. So this is, a, this is really cool. Um, and it doesn't cost that much money uh, from a budget. I think you can probably get away with it on, on a free tier in one of the clouds. Choose your favorite cloud, right? If, if you don't have something that's already available to you to, to kind of just install Kubernetes, it's really easy to install. But, you know, beyond that, um, go to a public cloud. And uh, you can install uh, either Kubernetes on some elastic compute nodes or, you know, whatever general compute, or just use one of the Kubernetes services that's out there. They're, they're all, right, they're all good. And what you can do is you can install something uh, from, uh, what am I forgetting it now? Um, it's because it's of all these acquisitions, right? Pivotal bot, whoever, and then... <laughs> Uh, but it was, uh, here, let me, I, I got to find it now. Um, cause, cause we got to link it as well. Uh, anyway, in essence, what this does is it's, it's a thing that is a repository for Helm charts and you can uh, effectively have this running. Um, it's, it's Bitnami's old thing, right? So Bitnami got bought by Pivotal and then Pivotal got bought by VMware. And now it's Tanzu's crazy the bigger fish app catalog thing. Yeah. I don't I, Anyway. Um, we'll, we'll link it um, after this, and, and that way everybody has access. I would install this. Um, immediately, you get a, a bunch of Helm charts that you can deploy kind of any number of applications, and it's soup to nuts, right? So you have the ability, and we're just going to use something like super simple. So you have WordPress, right? So you can click WordPress, and, and it will do everything, including set you up a sidecar container for the database, you can choose MariaDB or MySQL, whichever variant that you're familiar with, and it's guaranteed to work together, right? You don't have to worry about setting anything up. And then um, you can also have a metrics sidecar. So you have full observability into, you know, what, what your frequency of requests are, all these things. And then with a couple more presses of a button, you can actually set up inbound rules into this Kubernetes cluster so that you can have multiple WordPress sites, right? That you, you've now clicked a button six times and you have six different WordPress sites that you can have all with their own database. Or if you wanna use a shared database container, you can do that too. It, it allows you that option within the configuration. Um, and, and really quickly, you can start to see, oh man, I can start to deploy many apps, have a, a persistence backend, that I don't necessarily need to know about. And that's a really cool demo. 
And one thing that you can do to take it a step further is if you're comfortable on the command line enough to get this installed, um, you can install the, the operator repository, essentially. And now you have access to enterprise-grade deployments of so many databases, right? So MySQL is one, Cassandra is another. And as long as there is an operator that's in the operator's ecosystem at Red Hat, you can click button, install, configure the CRDs, everything, all in one easy to, to, to have place. And what I would say is play with that for maybe three to four hours, half a day, get familiar with it, and then challenge whoever in your IT department to get the guy that knows how to do something that your company does and race them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a really powerful demonstration because in half a day without having to know the intricacies of, of how to deploy things, you can get there five hours faster than the guy that's going to configure it and have to spin up VMs and provision um, lungs in a sand and, and have to figure out what's all going on there. Um, or you've spent a whole lot of money on hyperconverged and you've already got Nutanix, in which case, what are you doing? I just use Nutanix, right? Or <laughs> yeah. This is good because like that's the thing is one thing when we're when we're talking about this, we're telling people, yes, you can run stable workloads on, on on Kubernetes, but you know, there are different factors here. The what is it, how is it done, and why is it done? Um, as you as you explained there, we have timing, we have performance, we have productivity, um, some cases even cost saving, other things like you, you mentioned, you know, the op- operator catalog that's that's readily available. Are there any other benefits that I haven't mentioned now or that you generally try to, to keep in conversations when you're debating with, uh, with different folks about why this is a good idea? I, I, think, I think the scariest part about Kubernetes is what about my stuff that's not in Kubernetes? Like, that's the scariest part about Kubernetes. And I, I just think that that is just quite frankly, just not a good excuse anymore. <laughs> Because right? there's there's so many good ways to get ingress and egress traffic to do what you want it to do from your Kubernetes cluster, um, and you know federation from Kubernetes is coming a long way too. So you know the next generation of of what we're going to be talking about is well, how do I span the entire globe and with Kubernetes? Because that that gets pretty tricky now. Um, but I, I feel like that's the the, the, the key takeaway here is don't be afraid to just move what you can into Kubernetes. Don't move things into Kubernetes because you're committed to getting everything in Kubernetes. Some things just never make sense to be in Kubernetes. Some things don't need such as? automated provisioning and care and feeding and right. Some things are, are just fine to mm. live on their own as, as little one-offs that, that don't necessarily need orchestration. They don't need to be cloud native. But they may need to connect and have some type of egress and ingress from your cloud native applications. And so I would say there's a, you know, there's this whole lift and shift fallacy of like, you can containerize it and just throw it in Kubernetes. And I, you know, I, I know firsthand from a friend of mine that does managed services for you know, a really big enterprise and they have a lot of legacy applications they decided, hey, we're going to offer managed service and, you know, we want to simplify operations and blah, blah, blah. Let's just containerize it and throw it in Kubernetes. It's not working out, right? It's not working out great. Um, and the reason it's not working out great is, is you, you fundamentally have to embrace the cloud native architecture if, if you're going to go down the Kubernetes path. But that doesn't exclude the things that don't embrace that. You just have to interact with them differently. So Kubernetes isn't an all or nothing. All of my data has to be in Kubernetes or none of it does. Um, there's, there's ways to share data from your Kubernetes instances and managed infrastructure out to your, your non-Kubernetes managed stuff. So I wouldn't be scared of that. Okay. And it's, it's called QBAPs. I finally okay. remembered. Got it, got yeah. it, got it. Now, I don't know how you forget something so simple, but it's called QBAPs. Yeah, because there are too many names out there. Um, Let's see. A couple other things is that. So, what do you what do you think uh, needs to happen in order for this to become more commonplace? You know, because 
when I got started the data on Kubernetes community last year in September, a lot of it was, well, a lot of stuff that I was hearing, well, Kelsey Hightower says, you know, keep everything stateless, don't get data involved, it makes it too complex. We've even seen in his, you know, case that, you know, June uh, made his tweet about crossing the chasm. You commented on that um, very well in your article for the, for the new stack, as well as in the panel we did in, in KubeCon. We've now seen uh, recently that Kelsey also tweeted um, again about this. So it seems like if that was kind of the issue, that seems to be going away. What are some of the other things that need to change in order for this to become more commonplace? So um, I think Tyler Duzan, shout out to Tyler. Wonderful person. Um, One also yeah. had him in the, in the live stream. Well, actually in a pre-recorded talk, but anyway, he's amazing. Yeah, but he, he had this wonderful analogy about um, you know data being the anchor. Yeah. within Kubernetes. Yeah, we made an animated video, that's right. Yeah, and and how how much is that still true, right? I don't know how much that's still true because of this, you know, thing that I mentioned earlier. Networking has gotten so much better than even when we were talking about it then. That you can have data kind of move around really really quickly behind the scenes with a container. So, so your, your data has become significantly more portable in, in much larger quantities, um, I would say. And so the, the data portability piece, I think is, is mostly getting solved. I think there's a really, really good approach by some of these new SQL, distributed SQL databases that are kind of taking horizontal and vertical partitioning to kind of a, a new realm with the amount of orchestration that you can have at both the data layer and the application layer. But I'm still stuck on Kubernetes can only meet you. And I think Kelsey Hightower just, just said this very recently, right? Can only meet you halfway. We're gonna have to have vendors kind of wake up and say, I need my application to fully vertically integrate with Kubernetes right, and into that ecosystem. And it's not enough just to have an operator that lets people use the application that they are used to using outside of Kubernetes in Kubernetes. We have to make applications that are cloud-native, Kubernetes-based, that, that have features that are developed on top of things that are only available in the Kubernetes ecosystem. And then I think then you'll start to unlock a, a new level of progress within the community. Um, you know, and that's one of the things that, that we're trying to work on at Western Digital is how do we get kind of more devices to, to be the thing that you're directly interacting with instead of even having to go through a host where those devices are plugged in. Like, it's a really interesting question to be asking, especially whenever we're starting to disaggregate everything, right? We've got CXL right around the corner. We're about to have CPUs, just a box of CPUs, a box of memory, a box of SSDs, uh, a box of HDDs, and and all of that's just like supposed to magically work, just like it was all plugged into one server. Um, and so it's a really exciting future, and I think to really fully leverage what that future has to offer, these applications are going to need to evolve into that arena. Mm hmm. And with that in mind, we, we've talked about this before on several occasions, but, you know, operators seem to be one of the, you know, most promising solutions at the moment. Do you imagine a post-operator world where the other solutions might come in? I know you've mentioned deeper integrations at some point, but what, what would that involve? You know, I, I think operators are, they, they, I think they have the, the maturation lifecycle ahead of them, and, and that's, I don't know that you'll have operators for operators, but obviously you just spoke with somebody who has a, a, a way to have a, essentially a primary and a secondary operator that, that interface with each other and make operations easier across clusters. And I think that's the big next frontier is, hey, we've, we've got this thing down where within one Kubernetes cluster, which can be data center wide, which can actually span multiple availability zones, right? If you've got a low latency link between two availability zones in a data center, there's no reason why you can't have 
a, a Kubernetes cluster that is the entire size, right? I mean, you can have hundreds, thousands of nodes within that and, and have a fundamentally seamless experience. Now, when we start to split that by geography, right? And we start to introduce things like physics and the speed of light, <laughs> right? There's, there's intrinsically always going to be this latency and sometimes that just doesn't make sense, right? To span a cluster across the WAN and, and go from US East to US West or even more extreme US East all the way to Asia. Um, and, and we're gonna need a way for federation to happen, not in two independent clusters ways of thinking, but in a, I'm all one single deployment and all of my data belongs to that data as well. And I think that's the, the next really evolution that we're gonna experience in the Kubernetes landscape, especially when it comes to workload uh, orchestration and data persistence, because uh, data persistence is the only reason why it, it really makes a difference um, if you have one cluster here and one cluster there. The, the deployment experience is exactly the same for a stateless application. Yeah, push a button, it's gonna, go and deploy a bunch of stuff and it'll take ingress traffic. You can have all your DNS settings and all your service mesh, right? All that is transportable, very, very easily transportable. And none of that really needs to talk from region to region. But then when you have data that's persisted that that application needs to do its job, that's where things get complicated between regions. Mm -hmm. All right. Very good, Rick. Anything else you'd like to add before we finish? We know about Pi. We know that you don't play Counter-Strike. Not enough time for video games. Are there any other fun facts that you'd like to add before we wrap it up? Uh, no, I just, you know, I, I'm going to say it on here, but I, you know, I hope that the UT Longhorns football team figures out what their, what their issues are. <laughs> they're near <laughs> they and some, dear to my heart. They got some serious debugging. Well, because some... I actually... I wanted to mention this at the beginning is because, you know, we're in a community, but you have a longstanding history with the, the Longhorns community, if I'm not wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I have a, a pretty large Longhorns community. Um, it's called Surly Horns. If you check it out, the, don't judge me. It's a community. But uh, yeah, there are a bunch of Surly, surly people who are, are the, you know, fan. I think people forget that it stands for fanatic. So there, there's some fanatics <laughs> there and, you know. It's, it's hard to be happy about a whole lot whenever they're this bad, but it's okay, right? We've got Kubernetes to save the day. But I was also going to say it, but I, what I would like to touch on, though, is the fact that you're someone, how long have you been involved in this? You do, I'm saying you have a very, oh, you know, ten long, years, yeah. ten, I'm saying that's More, a, yeah. well, and just for folks that are out there as well, what, there's a wonderful word that's right underneath Surly Horns when you go on there. Um, and looking at the, uh, oh, wow, I'm not even going to read some of these, <laughs> the names of the threads. Uh, so who could we realistically hire tomorrow if Stark was hypothetically fired? Um, anyway, that, that's probably the, the most PG-13 title that's out there. Um, but anyway, I will drop a link. I will drop a link so that folks can check this out. Um, if you don't, if you, if interacting with Rick in the DOK, uh, community isn't enough, you definitely should check out Surly Horns. Um, Rick, have you, no, don't, yeah. Or, or just hit me up on Twitter. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you can also hit Rick up on Twitter. That's, that's kind of got a life of its own, right? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, but still, but no, I bet I'm intrigued, but I do think if, if, if nothing else, you've very much seen the power of community and what has yeah. that brought to you, um, by connecting with, you know, current students, alumni, how's that been? Yeah, it, it, there's there's a lot of parallels in right that this personal endeavor and most yeah, of my of business endeavors, and that they're very. I think the more the world becomes kind of this open place, um, and and more community based, the the more important it becomes to kind of have a very very structured identity and focus. Um, otherwise you just kind of turn into a loose bag. And, and I think that, uh, really one of the things that I've learned from having this community is, is how do we keep it focused? How do we keep it honed in? How do we maintain an identity instead of just adopt a, a different identity? Um, cause we're distinctly different than something like Barstool or distinctly different than, you know, what your Reddit offers you, um, or really any other message boards. Um, and I think that's true 
from almost all of the Linux Foundation and, and Apache Foundation sponsored projects. They they are very, very focused and directed on one thing. And I think that's one thing that sets them apart from some of the just more random projects that you'll find on the internet that kind of just float through time. And, you know, they have feature development, but it's not necessarily super, super focused and honed in. I really do think that, that you know, CNCF has been one of the main reasons that Kubernetes has been on the trajectory and, and had as much adoption as it has. And I think that that's a, a really key indicator of an extremely healthy community is, is you get buy-in to a certain style um, and, and you just kind of keep going with that. Yeah. Wow. Very, very good. But like I said, there's, whether it's, uh, you know, we've had folks that you know, play an instrument or have some kind of a hobby, but there's always a way that we can, we can see the interplay between these different things. Um, that being said, Rick, you are no stranger this to, to this community and I hope you never will be. Um, if you, when you can see my screen, let me know. Yeah, I can see it. Good. So while you were talking, we are an amazing graphic recorder on set in the background, drawing uh, a few of the things that you touched on, touched on a lot of different things today. Um, we'll be unpacking that stuff and getting some quotes out of there because there are a lot of nice insights um, hearing about your journey. Um, you know where you can find Rick on on uh, Twitter, Rick Vasquez II for the second. Um, will there be a third, Rick Vasquez? I yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we'll we'll see. I've got I've got a son, but his name is not Rick. So okay. <laughs> if we have if we have another son, yeah, there's there's a chance. There's a chance. All right, well, whatever. We're not going for a dynasty necessarily. That's all right. Um, anyway, Rick, thank you very much. Rick's always very easy to, to find and talk to on Slack. If you have any questions about databases, operators, any of the stuff we talked about today, he's very friendly and willing to help. Um, I don't think we have a better community member. We might have some that are at the same level, but anyway, Rick, you've always been great to our community and we're very grateful for all your help. Always love hanging out, Bart. Uh, happy to be back anytime. All right. Take it easy, man. Bye everybody. Thanks.